0: Thanks for tuning in to the Co-Live podcast, where we explore learnings, insights, and discussions with co-living operators and professionals from around the world. If you're a first-time listener on our podcast, just a quick reminder that Co-Live is the world's largest co-living association with the goal to connect, educate, and empower co-living professionals. Today's episode has been recorded during one of our monthly meetups, where we discuss a wide variety of topics related to co-living. To join our network or find out about future meetups and other events, please visit co-live.org. That's C-O hyphen L-I-V dot org. This week's episode is brought to you in partnership with Young Global Living, the platform for your co-living space based on your preferences. With Young Global Living, you can find a new place to live, discover new work opportunities, and connect with other community members all on one platform. Young Global Living wants to make experiences the new kind of living by matching co-livers with like-minded communities and providing co-livers with local perks where location is no longer a barrier. Feel free to look in the show description for more info on Young Global Living, as well as a link to their website, Young Global Living, where you want to be. Let's hop right in to today's episode
1: uh we are having our fantastic speaker for tonight i am very very appreciative of Matt's time i know he just became a dad not long ago so i know his time is very very precious and i'm really really happy that he decided to share his views with us tonight. So Matt is the co-founder of Scott Baker's properties and uh, the HMO platform. And not just that, I think he's someone I've met a few months ago and I have so many synergies with him because he really, really understand the difference between an HMO and co-living. And I am really looking forward to what he's going to share with us tonight. So if, we can all, if you can all join me, please, for a virtual round of applause for our speaker. So thank you very much for being here, and the floor is yours. Uh,
2: so yeah, I would like this to be interactive. Um, one thing I hate is talking at people and people just being, you know, obviously you're not going to be zombified by what I have to say, I hope, um, but please do, um, do chip in, do ask questions, pop them in the chat. I'm not going to have the chat open because whenever I do, I generally get distracted and I uh, being a typical bloke, I can't do more than one thing at once. So I'm going to focus on talking about what I've, what I've got to talk about. And then if there are any questions, please do uh, pop them in the chat. And then Kate will um, ask them at the right time or where she seems at the right time. So, And uh, I'm sure, Kate, you can just stop me in my tracks if necessary. So, yes, thank you very much for having me at uh, the wonderful CoLive uh, event this, this, um, this time. And what I think is fantastic about this uh, network is how how global it is and uh one thing which i've really been had my eyes opened to is how global the co-living community is um from kind of my humble beginnings in property about five years ago um just doing small hmos as as we call them in the uk and um how actually there's this huge global movement um which i'm very proud to say that i'm uh you know know, a part of and want to work with guys like yourselves and with Kate and Co-Live to you know, really push the agenda of um, uh, getting co-living and, and, and the right form of, uh, of living in amongst community and, and shared properties. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but yeah, this is me. Uh, I'm going to be talking about creating the next level HMO. And I'll tell you what I mean by that a bit later on, uh, doing it the co-living way. So I'm going to be sharing my experience, my knowledge, uh, and some of our goals within our business. Um, so, uh, but before we do, you probably want to, know, oh, I'm going to do some case studies as well. I know um, Kate talked about uh, some case studies. I've got a couple of case studies I want to go into in detail. Um, and then yeah, you know, if you want to know more, I've got pl- uh, plenty of other deals that we can um, talk about um how they partic- those particular ones work. Um, so, first of all, you probably want to know a little bit about me. Well, my name's Matt Baker, and actually, I'm a professional pianist, composer, and arranger. Uh, property is actually my second career. Um, it's something which I kind of happened across by accident about five years ago, um, um, it just well, when, when I hit 30. And my 20s have been all about making music, uh, writing music, composing music. as a session musician, uh, but I was also a business owner. Uh, I realized very quickly that being a session musician wasn't going to pay the bills um, very well. It was very choppy, you know, up and down type of income. And um, I, I found that uh, if I was going to have a family and, and grow, um, yeah, I really, I really wanted to grow a business. Um, I always had this this entrepreneurial streak I wanted to make something really great and um was doing it in music but actually realized that if to to tally that with with the money and and actually getting a secure foundation financially um having a business was a better well a, a better way of doing it and in music for me that was um running a music school so I started teaching and I set up a music school in South Oxfordshire called the Tame Institute of Music. And that was, um, my first successful business that I sold that last year. Um, using the skills I actually learned through, through property investing. So, um, that was me before property. Um, and just to prove it, I've got some pictures here, um, playing on television and, uh, and, um, did some work with Jamie Collum. And this is a current band I'm working on, Look um, which is Afro-Cuban music, um, I'm a jazz pianist, and I'm actually, you're actually in my studio right now. Um, there we have the keyboards and everything set up. Um, you thought we were gonna talk about property, didn't you? Uh, yeah, so uh, this is Afro-Cuban music, which um, is a style that I absolutely love playing. So we're currently halfway through recording an album uh, with an amazing producer based in Switzerland. Uh, so uh, what I found was that having uh, and investing in property uh, and being a conduit for good quality um, properties to, to develop and because and we work with investors, investors invest into our business and we, we develop um, properties and we joint venture. Um, it gives me the time and the flexibility to be able to go out there and do music on my terms, um, which is a positive for me. But I'm a property investor and developer. As I said, I've been um, doing this now um, uh, coming up to, to, yeah, it's definitely it's, uh, five years. Um, I'm an HMO and co-living specialist uh, I started off with um, a couple of buy-to-let properties, um, a bungalow and a, and a three-bed a semi, uh, three-bed terrace house, uh, and very quickly realised that I wanted some of the more life-changing um, income that can come from investing into an HMO. And then, as I developed HMOs, I already, already had the idea of, of, of wanting to create community within property, um, but didn't really know much about co-living five years ago, and it's been an education and in. in um, understanding and application, um, which I'll come in, come into later on. I'm also an educator. Uh, I love to talk about what we do. Um, it's been a natural progression for me, obviously working in music and educating within the musical um, world, um, teaching piano and uh, and a couple of other other instruments. Um, so i love to talk about what we do um, and help others um, in a one-on-one and group environments, which is what we do. But I'm also a podcaster um i podcast some of you will have heard of property jam in fact can i have a a raising of hands has anyone actually heard or listened to property jam to jam before um not many actually okay Uh, i'm just going through i'm just going through the um this we've got a couple of people that have been have been guests on property jam in the room um so yeah so property jam is um the uh, no nonsense um discussion um about property and the human side of property and there's so many property podcasts out there about um uh, this is how you do this this is how you do that and very informative and educational and we decided to do the opposite in fact our tagline is this podcast is not meant to be informative or educational and has the potential to be completely irrelevant so that is essentially the tag what we wanted to do with property jam and make it um subconscious learning yeah. We learn through hearing about what others have been doing. Yeah. So that is Property Jam. Uh, uh, check it out uh, if you want to have a listen to that. But what, what have we done Um, in, it's actually close to five years now, built um, almost a five million pound portfolio um, using uh, investor finance, uh, which is 96, 96 rental units, over 200 happy tenants over those years. Um, and they turn over around about um, Uh, 50 grand, something like that, 50,000 pounds per month. And that is um, the power of doing shared properties rather than just individual housing. And here's some um, examples of some of the stuff we've done. Um, I'm gonna talk about this one on the top left uh, a bit later on. Um, This is the bungalow, the very first property which we purchased um, myself and my mum five years ago. And very coming up very close to the day actually. And that was uh, a property we went in over Christmas five years ago and we stripped it all apart took it uh, and then started to put it back together again um so that was my first experience of property and learned a lot and obviously every project we've done we've learned a lot we've had hurdles it's been difficult we've overcome those problems and then we've got to this the the solution um so in here we've also got a cannabis farm the one on the right here that was a cannabis farm not a going concern um but we turned that into a very lovely six bedroom um shared house um we've also got land we've, we have done a few things which are different to co-living um so a land flip so we, we bought some land got planning on and sold it with uh, planning for for, for for this um knowing what i'd know now and i probably would have gone for um planning for a very large um co-living de- development there not, not large large but uh, a decent size um but um that particular council is a pay on the backside um so it probably would take about five years to go through um but um that's why we're no longer in that one we decided to sell it on and this one in the middle uh, is now 21 22 bed um shared, accommod- shared accommodation and we've also got twins down the bottom here uh, another commercial property on the bottom left and some interesting stuff so um I'm gonna show you some examples of these. And if you want to know more, you can ask questions. Um, I'm happy to stay here all night beyond two and a half hours if if necessary. Kate, that's absolutely fine. Um, as long as it's not bath time, yeah. Right, so um, so some of the stuff we've done has been picked up in some of the uh, in uh, media, so um, the two of our projects were in the YPN magazine you may have seen, uh, and it was focused on com- converting commercial buildings into large HMO communities, and, and that was in um, an edition last year, beginning of last year, and those projects are now completed and also more recently last month in september we were in the HMO magazine and uh keep your eyes peeled for the october edition because i believe there's going to be a lot of focus on co-living um so keep your eyes peeled for that and one of the examples which i'm going to explain to you tonight was the feature in uh the HMO magazine just gone um but also hot off the press um i'm going to tell you about something which um is coming in october um because we love surveys and because we take a very customer uh, focused approach to um, investing and to managing uh, properties, um, we like to find out what's going on. So with our, uh, we wanted to ask our tenants, ask the people living in our properties, um, what's good, what's not so good. But we didn't want to just ask our, our tenants, we wanted to ask as many people as possible. So we went out and we set up the shared living survey, and we did that in March, April time um, this year. And uh, we it, this was the landing page at the time uh, whereby people could click um, to take part. So tenants could. Um, if, so we found got access to tenants through so Facebook and um, through agents and through other landlords. So it was just asking people who manage properties to pass this survey on to their tenants. Um, the incentive for the tenant to take part was a. a, a amazon voucher and the incentive for the landlord to take part was the fact that they're going to get some feedback based upon um how things are going and when we can get a lot of this data across the uk together then we as investors and operators of co-living and um spaces can really um up our game to provide what the tenants actually want Um, And I'm using the word tenant because it's the word that we use um, in the property industry, but it's not how we generally refer to our tenants. Uh, We normally refer to them as housemates, um, but I will be using the word um, tenant because um, we're talking about investments for the the time being. Uh, But the shared living survey is in the YPN in October. So get yourself a copy of that um, to read a bit of it or alternatively, uh, you can just go and download yourself a copy uh, from um uh, It's completely free, um, just go and download it and then you can see um, some of the insights that we found. Uh, but I'm not gonna go into, into those today, but feel free to ask any questions if you've got them um, later on. Okay, so I know we've got a, a mixed crowd of some experienced people, some less experienced. So I just wanna um, test the room a little bit by asking a question. And I'm not sure the best way to do this, Kate, but normally I just say put your hand up or unmute yourself. Um, So what is an HMO? I'm going to ask that question to the floor.
1: I also would like to say that uh, we have a lot of people who are international on the call. So not everybody really actually knows what HMO stands for, because I think it's a very British way of calling this. So it would be interesting to see what people think.
2: Okay, brilliant. So what is an HMO?
1: Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Don't I'm be shy. Yourself.
2: There are some people in this room that I know. Yes, know yes. Answer. So
1: <laughs> I Valeria, Valeria says HMO stands for House of Multiple Occupancy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
2: that is that is correct. Anyone else?
1: Yeah, I Zoe. I tell you because I know the reply. So
3: where uh, a property is rented out by three at least three people who aren't related or from the same household. So. They'll
0: have yep. like a
2: room each, but maybe share a bathroom and share a kitchen or something. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else got any other thoughts about what an HMO is?
0: We have me, Mi-
1: Michaela, who says three or more people from two yep. or more different household.
2: Yeah. That's such a fun way of describing HMO, isn't it? Okay. So um, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to go through some definitions. So some technical stuff, which will be, some of you will know this, For some of you that, that won't, an HMO is a house of multiple occupation. That is the national definition um, from the UK government. So it's an entire house or flat, which is let to three or more tenants who are not from one household. For example, a family, any share a kitchen, bathroom or toilet. It's pretty dull. Um, uh, um, but it's a technical definition of what it is. Um, now, so, so, so technically, if we're thinking about what co-living is, every single co-living property is probably in the UK an HMO, because it's a technical definition of what a share, of, of shared living. Now if you go and but, but the thing is that the de- definition of HMO depends who you ask. So in the UK, you need to have licensing on your property to, to let a property which has got five or more tenants who are not from one household, you share a kitchen bathroom and toilets. So you can see it's already starting to get a bit confusing. So a national definition of of an HMO, or I might just call it a shared house, um, is three or more people. Um, Whereas if you're going to speak to the council about getting a licence, it suddenly goes to five or more people. Now, the licensing department, uh, the housing standards department, will care about the amenity and the space. So how much space people have per room, per bathroom, per kitchen, per living space, exactly. And there are standards at a national level, and there are also standards at a local level. Now we can go and ask some more people. We might ask the planning department. So um, for those of you who are not based in the UK, every single um, property, when you make changes to it, requires some kind of permission you go to the council and you ask for. So, um, and what they do is they classify properties in different ways. So a house, your own house that you live in would be classified in what's, what is called C3. And the class, the, the use class C um, basically refers to residential property and c3 would be what's called a dwelling house um, now as soon as you put in three or more people who are unconnected um, then it becomes a small hmo and it changes from c3 to c4 to c4 let me go back and that's up to six people so again we've got this 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 other definition of hmo being between three and six people um, and then just to confuse us even more, if you want to put seven or more unconnected people into a property, which uh, a lot of the large co-living spaces, for example, like the collective um, or some of the other ones would be seven or more, that requires a different type of planning permission, um, which would fall under what's called sui generis, which is a Latin term, which means in a class of its own. I call it the dustbin of planning permission because anything that doesn't fit anywhere else, just they just say, oh, it's in the sui generis. So you need planning permission, you need to go to the council, um, and tick a lot of boxes in order to get that permission through. Um, and that's where we like to put our next level HMOs. Um, and I'll come on to what those are a bit later on. The planning department care about different things. They do care about amenity standards, but they're more fussed about cycle storage, um, how people, where are people are gonna park and where you're gonna put the bins. Um, so it's they've all got slightly different remits and planning departments and licensing departments, even though they might be in the same building for a council, don't necessarily talk to each other, although they are starting to a little bit more. And then we've got something else, uh, building regulation. So um, you might call this a building warrant, or you might call it um, uh, basically the standards by which you have to build. So when you build something, someone comes along and, and checks it, a building inspector. Um, so HMOs don't, are not classified um, in that particular part of the, the the um the industry so it it is open to interpretation but these guys are going to care about your fire insulation your, your, how, how you protect it for fire your sound insulation you know what windows you need uh, any new drainage etc so as Matt, you can see yes
1: Matt sorry uh, you might say this one after I'm not sure if you do yeah. uh, does this change city by city and council by council or are you talking more like national blanket? building regulations yeah
2: is national okay. But the interpretation of building regs um, is very, uh, it it could be interpreted differently by different councils. But the good thing about England and Wales is that we can get a third party inspector to sign it off who we can choose. Um, And basically, we could interview them and just make sure that they're on our wavelength when it comes to um, the things that we are, where we don't necessarily need to spend extra money on stuff so for example sound insulation can cost an absolute fortune if you are tested in one way versus another Um, obviously you want good sound insulation between bedrooms um but but each bedroom shouldn't be tested if it's in an an individual flat which is something which could happen Um, okay so i'm going to come back to this question again we've talked about some technical definitions of hmos and hopefully that has been new information for some people Um, but I'm going to ask a question again. Has anyone got a better definition of an HMO? Feel free to unmute yourself. No, okay. Um, we've got a shy bunch tonight. Okay, well, it's a home. Home. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it is a home. It doesn't take much to turn an HMO into a home. In fact, it's only the, the addition of the letter E. And, um a home where people feel safe and secure. And this is where we start to get away from the old way of doing HMOs and the new way of doing HMOs, which is um, starting to become co-living. So the old way, um, if you look at this, um, I literally went on to uh, spareroom.co.uk. This is your bedroom, isn't it, Kate? Yeah?
1: I mean, when you came to see me, I didn't know you were going to take photos. uh, (laughs) uh, You have to sign, you know, like, I cannot believe it. I didn't give you any authorization. I'm going to speak to the local council and, uh, yeah, I'm not. To be honest,
2: whoever, if you are the landlord of this property, I I won't know. um, because I literally took it off the first page of um, spareroom.co.uk in one town. I I think it was Coventry. And um, this was on the first page of Spare Room. And there are people out there that think that um, the HMO market has improved dramatically um, across the board, and the, it hasn't. You know, in certain areas, there's a lot of operators doing a lot, of, a lot of good stuff uh, in terms of making good quality design. Can't talk about how well they're managed or uh, the service that the tenants get, the housemates receive. But there are some areas where they, some people have gone in and made some really good-looking HMOs. Um, however, the majority still look like this. Um, so it's amazing what uh, people are still putting out there as being good quality shared accommodation. combination. is definitely the old way. Um, this is what I call the beige box and I'll explain that in a moment. Um now if we look at, so these are, um, I would say a bit of a step up from that. These are um, some pictures from properties that we've done. Um, so the one on the left, we did about four years ago. The one on the right, we did about three years ago. And I'd still say these are, this is like beige box plus. So we've now got a gray feature wall um, and we've got a little bit of artwork and some, and some stuff. So uh, I wouldn't say that these are good examples of great design, mainly because I chose them um, <laughs> and I'm not a great designer, which is why I leverage the expertise of people who are. And um, uh, moving into some of the stuff that we've done in the last 18 months, I, I much prefer these cause we've had, I've had some input from other people. Um, we didn't get the greatest photos done of this one. And that is my fault. Um, But um, here's some some photos of a project I will show you and some CGI's of a project which is now completed um, in and around Manchester. Uh, But you can see we're starting to go get a lot more design led in the actual creation of the HMO itself. But but, which is why um, I don't like the word HMO. And I know we've talked about it so far uh, because people are applying the word HMO to the beige box, um, the the slum landlord, and they're applying the word HMO to some really fantastic properties. Um, So we need a a way to distinguish ourselves. Um, And co-living isn't, I know that the um, the heading of this particular um, presentation was um, co-living as an asset class or or investing in co-living. Co-living is not an asset. Co-living is the environment, it's the way of being and that can be created around the HMO itself. The HMO is the asset. The co-living is what makes an HMO next level. I'm going to talk about um, the old way versus the new way. And the fact that you know, we, we, if we go back a few decades, um, we had the, the old computer. Um, we had uh, basically uh, a product which had become commoditized. It was this beige box. Um, and you had you know, the likes of um, IBM and um, I can't try to think of companies back then. Um, but basically, basically companies are just re- repeating the same thing and just getting cheaper and, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And then you have Steve Jobs, who comes out um, with a very different way of, of approaching technology and he brings out the apple it's just the um i believe it's the g4 imac Um, it's colorful now and it's no longer called a personal computer it's got a name it's a it's a mac it's an imac so it's something completely different to the beige box and in fact profit margins on the beige boxes were going down and down and down profit margins on the imac were going up and continue and if you compare the prices of a you know, a really good spec uh, like PC laptop now to really good spec Mac. Yeah, there's a dramatic price difference. And some of that is, you might say it's difficult to justify, but I know I'm presenting to you from a Mac because I'm, I became a Mac person maybe because of music, but, um, and some of them just look nicer. I know I'm going to divide the room here because you've probably got Mac and PC people. Um, but what my point is, is that the market of, of um, selling PCs was highly commoditized. Whereas now we've got this thing, which is different, which is next level and is something complete. And and this is where co-living sits in the, in the, the realm of HMOs. And that's why we came up with this uh, term of the asset, which is a next level HMO. Um, and um, we define it in six ways. It's a design-led property where tenants love to live. Um, a deal for an investor that provides a high return and high cash flow because we, we, we need to think about the um, the tangible as well. We need to be able to make these things work financially before we can create the community that can live within it. Um, a property that benefits from economies of scale. Um, so when you go slightly larger in scale, you can actually um, in, increase your profitability by um, your running costs not, improve, uh, not increasing at the same amount as your turnover. Um, and because of, um, the difficulty of getting planning permission on larger ones, so those seven plus bedrooms, uh, we do like to do those because when we can get those planning permissions, we actually get an uplift in value. So it makes them a lot more worthwhile doing for the, for, from, through the eyes of the developer. Um, And also, this is something which is quite interesting. It's a commercial conversion where we can take um, a large underutilized um, commercial property, and then we can create a number of smaller flats within it. And then those flats become shared units. Uh, I've got one example of that where we've done it, where we create seven apartments where they're um, an, an average of three rooms per apartment. And I love this model and it's something which we're looking to um, create more of where, because in our, during our doing our surveys, we know that people don't really want to share with more than three or four other people. Um, so if you're going to go and make a 12 bed, 20 bed shared living, you want to have a sense of sharing with a smaller amount of people as well as being part of a wider community. Um, so that's a model that we that we have done and that, that we we do as next level HMOs. But then fundamentally, it's a community focused service service led and um, property, which is where we get on to um, uh, our tenant first methodology, where we actually put the tenant at the heart of every decision we make. And this is how we put our deals together, um, looking at the, the, the what I call the five principles of, of being a next level landlord. So, um, when we put the, the the tenant at the heart of everything we do, then um, the Tenant has a better time, and we, as the developer, have um, less. will have fewer issues with um, tenants and fewer issues with um, with the financials. But what is co-living? Um, my I've given this a lot of thought, and I've written articles on it, and I, Kate, shared it to quite a few people ago. Kate, co-living is the same as an HMO, um, which is not because we talked about my view that the property, the asset, is the HMO or what should be a next level HMO. To, so that you don't fall into the commoditized marketplace. And then the community is what then is the wrapper around it that, that makes the magic happen. To make it work well, you need great space, you need great design, and you need great service. And that then engenders great community. So that's the way that I would approach a development um, and how you would approach the management the operations of um, a co-living space. So I've got just that question here. Because there's three things that um, I would say you, you definitely would like to have. Is great design actually something which is required? Can you create community within a property which maybe isn't designed as well as someone, you know, another one? It's just a, just a, something to put out there. Because I don't think that co-living is all, and it's, it's an article I've been uh, writing for the last few days. Um, co-living is not necessarily just about the design and i think that's somewhere that some people get confused going well actually um to create community all we need is is um, a really great good looking property well actually no it takes a lot more than that um the great looking property is the starting point and what comes beyond that is co-living um and again we uh, we have a way of um just like a checklist to making sure that we're covering off um the elements of co-living and yeah uh, the other day i thought well surely we can have i can make a mnemonic from co-living to say the, the, the seven things well hang on eight one two three four five six seven eight yeah there's eight letters in co-living i do know that um so when we when we do a project we, we make sure that we we're bringing people into our properties. We're doing community outreach. We're, bring, we're bringing community into the home, but also into the local community with the small businesses. We're listening, getting feedback all the time from our occupants. Uh, we're making sure that we're looking at the individual as well as the community. So understanding that it's just it's not just about being in a community. The person is, is important because people will think about themselves first. When they're happy, then they will engage in a community. Um, understanding how to present a community well um, uh, aligning people's interests so people will stay in properties when they get on well with others so um to have a mutual interest um, is really important so whether that's watching the football together or um you know under you know, going to you know reading books or um you know, okay, you know what, what, what do 21 year olds do these days coding they probably do coding clubs they're all like really Um, intelligent, aren't they? Everyone knows how to code these days. Um,
1: (laughs) That is so true. Ruby on Rails. I also learned that name. Ruby on Rails. It's the geeky community.
2: Yeah. So in, in that one, yeah. So that one particular Valeria is the, is the geek community, whereas you'll, you'll have, and, and this will be, and you need to know your market because in London, it's going to be completely different to doing this in Newcastle. Co-living will work in, you know, in many, many places around, around the UK and around the world, but you need to know your market and this way of thinking about it. will you need to apply that in your own, in, in your own area. But then there are some things which are going to be common. So for example, nurturing relationships, if you don't nurture relationships um, things can you know go sour quite quickly you lose faith with with uh, lose face and faith with with your um um uh, with your housemates and then gatherings to bring people together so that's again um a tick list that we go through to ensure that our prop- properties have a really good um um you know but basically that they meet the co-living um standards i think actually it's really hard to know what co-living standards are because no one's gone out there and said oh this is what co-living should be so i actually think it might be quite a nice thing um to actually write down you know maybe well kate you just do it just write down a list of what co-living is and then tell us all there we go co-live can be the um can let us know what's going to happen
1: interesting watch this space
2: oh really Okay, well there you go. Kate's gonna do it, um, <laughs> and, and let us know. Um, so that um, takes me on to. But actually, we'll at this point, does anyone have any questions before I go into some specifics about how we've done it in a in a few case studies?
4: Um, I do have a question.
2: Yeah, where are uh, it's you? Misha from College, Misha. Netherlands. Yes. Hi.
4: Hi. Um, very happy to hear about. How easy? Yes, trust me, you have an easy way in the UK uh, and England and Wales, even more with the zoning and regulations in the Netherlands, it's way worse. Yeah. <laughs> so don't cross the water yet. Uh, but I have a question uh, on the co-living, the communities. And, uh, is there also like um, somebody in the house or do you have like a property manager? Uh, how, how do you, do you help them to create the community?
2: Yes. So uh, that's a really, that is a really good question um so that is an the answer to that is it is evolving so most managers so i live in worthing on the south coast our properties are are scattered in the midlands in the northwest the northeast scotland so if i was in one town and we had all 100 units in one place then i would be um i would set up an agency and i'd be running it the way i wanted to run it yeah so what we are lacking is economy of scale across multiple areas at the moment. Um, So we use managing agents on the ground. And as you can imagine, some managing agents are great. Other managing agents are not so great. Some managing agents will um, share your vision, others won't. And I'll tell you, hand on heart, most of them don't share your vision, even if they tell you that they do, because they're just thinking about the bottom line. And fundamentally, you are thinking about the bottom line as well. But as an ethical developer and landlord, you probably want a better outcome for your customer because they're your customer than your agent does, which is bizarre, which is very, very bizarre. I meet so many agents who just should not be agents. They're just not people people. And that is a job um, which um, some people should not do. (laughs) Um, So um, we use managing agents on the ground. And we've actually we're actually starting to dictate to them how we want it to be managed, um, and we and, and There's definitely a need for a an agency or or, or um, an operator um, who can do this do this better. And uh, it's something which um, we, we we're kind of looking to explore at the moment is how we could make that work across multiple sites for our own portfolio. Um, so yeah, in answer to your question, there isn't a simple way of doing it, um, but. Um, we do it through our agents. So we will give our agents ideas. We'll say, put, the, put an event on and we will put X amount behind the bar um, or send them a voucher for beer and pizza night um, or um, yeah, do this, put this on and, and say, yes, we are encouraging it through the agents. Um, some of them very reluctantly do it. Um, others um, are well well up for it and because they see the value. Sorry, you're muted there, Misha. So I didn't hear that.
4: Uh, yeah, no, no. Thank you. That uh, I recognise that too. Unfortunately, the agents yeah. and the difference, and yeah, it's and yeah, it's, it's. I think it's evolving as well.
2: Yeah, I. Th- I think there will be a solution, um, and I. And um, I think it'll be relatively soon, um, but for for now, it's a bit piecemeal.
4: Yeah, well, like you said, in the final, um, that if they see the value of it, it's same as now the value of green in developing is is seen that 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 it's that it's as actually money. Yeah, that that, that kind well, of I value, actually, and then it's asset managed again. But yeah, thank you.
2: Yeah, no, I, I see is that that um, yeah, this you know Co-Live as an organization is really pushing this forward, and um, I think the more investors um, that can be attracted to this forum um, it will make the difference and will push people towards this way of um, managing this way of looking after people um, and to be fair it, th- th- there's two there's two types so, yeah, if you've got a, um, a portfolio of buy to their properties that are rented to families the, fam- the families don't really want to have any input from the managing agents they just want to pay their rent and when, th- when things get broken it gets fixed that's the the type of relationship that managing agents and that sector work the shared living sector is very different because you've got somebody moving into um, a a, a property that may or may not have a sense of community Um, they don't know anybody uh, and we know that loneliness is on the increase so um, moving into some uh, some shared properties can exacerbate that problem um, with people not feeling included. So I think we actually have a responsibility as the owners and operators of these properties to ensure that people get that sense of 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 belonging um, when they move into properties. And um, yeah, I think we can encourage that, definitely.
1: I cool. agree. Um, and thanks for mentioning Kuliv in there as well. Yes, we are very uh, on board with that. There is also another question from Walter. Walter is asking, what kind of personalities you're making good experiences Walter, I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask?
4: Hello, everybody. Yes, um, he's, he just said that uh, some agents are doing a good job and they understand the vision and they also live this vision and others not. So so the question is, is what type of agents he is making uh, good experiences and and um, because that's where we can learn something, right? Um, yeah, the best
2: agents that I have seen are the ones that are, uh, uh, they're generally ones that are setting up a new business. So they're getting into it for the right reasons and they're generally younger and understand that that market. So, um, not, you know, not that age is a, is a, is a thing at all, but, um, I think that re- really good agents um, have lived and breathed it, um, and they understand what, they, what what their market wants. You and, so, um, and having the insight and and, and, and getting feedback from your um, your housemates fr- fr- from your your clients, I think is an, is the number one thing. So when you start to do that, then agents can start to feedback and and make improvements to their service. Um, so those are things I would be looking for. Um, is engagement and putting community above maintenance like house maintenance is something which could, it should just be done it's it's such a you know houses should be looked after there's looking after a house and there's looking after the people in that house they're two different things cool hopefully that helped helped thank
3: you i, I have a question matt And perhaps you will cover it later, but I'll ask it now. And if you are thinking of covering it later, just say that, Um, you know, and it's something that I wrote on that um, um, sheet that um, so the service part of a co-living space is kind of very important because it's the way you create that community. Now, what do you consider then a service behind a co-living space rather than a community? How, how do you gauge that to be a service that will create a community or not?
2: So I think the in, in, in answer to that question, each house is going to be different. Each house is going to, um, some houses will naturally gel and will naturally create community. Others will need more input. And so the, the bit that kind of the bottleneck of when a community is going to work or not is when uh people come in and leave so when someone joins a community it's about how they how they um assimilate into that community um and um so as managers and operators we need to ensure that um that process of bringing new people into the community is managed well and that um the other housemates are on board with you know bringing them in and um you know showing them the ropes and et cetera. so they're not just left to fend for themselves um so it's almost like a, a handover process from finding that person who's going to move in um but also could you potentially ask the people that already live there to to find someone or to vet the people yourself you know could you potentially have uh, the tenants choosing their new housemate? that's how it works in, in towns like London. Um, where the landlord just says, yeah, you're in the house until you move out. When, when you move out, you need to find someone else to replace you and the housemates all sort it out between themselves. Um, so actually taking a, a tenant led approach to management could actually be a, a real positive. Um, so again, a light touch approach, I think is probably the answer here, a light touch approach. Um, so asking people let, let's put on an event to bring people closer together and let's do that every couple of months we will organize something but we would yeah i think it'd be a good idea if you did this as well um so um community management is the thing it's having someone who's responsible for checking in with them for putting on you know, um uh, having yeah, events potentially and and um uh, yeah, so I'd say that's the, the, the difference. Some of the things that I would want to be happening in property, in our properties. Does that answer the question? Uh,
3: in, in a way, I think I'm trying still to get my head around um, the lines between what an HMO is and what a co-living space is, according to that definition. because. yeah. When, when you say, um, you know, the selection process, I think is, is a bottom line for any HMO that's going to be successful because yeah. otherwise you have fastened around, you, you know, you have too, ma- too much voids, too many voids and yeah. so on because people start leaving. Well, if you select people naturally that in a way that they actually are happy with each other, have per- perhaps common interests, then naturally, of course, they will want to stay in that place. Yeah. Um however, because that, that, that defines an HMO as well, doesn't necessarily define a co-living space. So I was trying to understand a little bit better where the line stops blending and when we are actually in a, a co-living well, space rather than a well, HMO space.
2: I suppose that to, to clarify, there will be some HMOs out there which have naturally become co-living spaces. Remember, um, a co-living is all about the, the community element. So, um, there will be some really, you know, not particularly good-looking properties, probably somewhere in London, where you've got maybe six, seven, eight people sharing, and um, they form—they've naturally formed a community within them because either the agent has well matched the people within it, um, or um, it, it just, you know, luck has happened that these people get on really well and they've formed their own community that necessarily didn't need facilitating. But if you want to get that. On a more ongoing, regular basis within your portfolio, uh, and create co-living, then there has to be more of a curated process of how are we going to encourage the forming of those communities? Are these people the right people to be living together? Could you potentially only show people rooms available in communities where they might where, where they might um, assimilate well? Um, so it it becomes more about your the people renting a community rather than renting a room. I don't like using bunny ears, I don't know why I just did it, but <laughs> you get that idea. So they're moving into a community rather than moving into a room.
3: So in that respect, the, the design of a space, as in, in, in how big the bedroom needs to be versus how big the communal areas need to be then, has need to reflect that. Because if you want to create a community, Then you will need to create a a communal area that is prone to accepting a community, and maybe your your stress on how big the bedroom is doesn't you know complying with rules and regulations etc. But doesn't have to be then necessarily the most important part. Is that
2: well? I, I would. So my answer to that would always be test your market, understand your market. So the answer to that in London will be different to the answer to that in Birmingham, will be different to the answer to that in Brighton. So know your market, know what your customers want in that area and what they're willing to accept, what they're willing to pay for. Um, so once you know that you can then implement it. So that, that's part of the reason for doing the shared living survey was to get a sense of this. So I would suggest go and download a copy of it because that that is addressed in there um, and uh, and one of the the outcomes of the shared living survey was that people think about themselves first. They're all, and people will, they'll always think about themselves first. So is this right for me? Is this enough space for me? Do I have this? Do I have that? And once all those boxes are ticked and they're going, right, okay, what's what's the home like? What's being part of this community going to be like? So in some areas they might go in and say, well, yes, this room is is fine it's, it's got a space and in london they might be like well an eight square meter room is fine i'm very happy with that so that ticks the box whereas in warrington they might be like well i really want a 10 square meter room so i'm going to tick that box so um and i'm not talking about as you say the the licensing requirements and minimum space standards i'm talking about the what the tenant wants standards which is what you need to understand in your area so yeah. asking asking people is is the best way, and and seeing what is working in the market already, uh, and if you go and look at you know twenty HMOs that are renting, and, and you look at why why some fill uh, um, over others, um, you'll be able to quickly see that oh um, these rooms are too small, or you must have an ensuite in every single room in order to let well in this this particular uh, town. So um, and the communal space. Um, you might need one massive communal space or it might be better to have two communal spaces. Um, You might think, actually, yes, I always want to have some outside space for community. Um, So um, we would generally review each area and go, yes, we want, um, yeah, we like large living spaces, but we also like large bedrooms. So at some point, somewhere, something's got to give. So um, unless you find really great properties, um, which is what I would always encourage you to do.
1: (laughs) So So, that's probably a good
2: point right
1: yeah no there's a lot of questions about this topic again but what i'm going to do is if if you guys are all happy with that i'm going to let matt finish a little bit a couple of his case studies etc and then we can open up again the discussions around uh the role of a house manager no sorry a community manager you know how can the operators do it etc okay is that okay for you matt
2: yeah that's absolutely fine because actually that leads quite well into into this example cool and this case study. So um, this is a double fronted. So that means all of that bit there. So um, our boundary wall is there. It's an N Terrace property. Um, so uh, built in the nine, yeah, eight, I think late 1800s. Um, and um, this was owned by the same family from 19, since 1957. Um, and it had been operating as an office for an insurance broker. Um, so it's all double fronted. So we've got um, all of these rooms, and it goes back. It's probably a square property. I'll show you the floor plan in a minute. Um, but just to prove it was an office. Um, well, actually, before we do that, this is what it looks like today. Um, so, and we kind of replaced all the windows. Um, some nice railings around here, and some light wells because we actually went down into the basement as well because there was plenty of space down there. Now, just to give you an insight into what it was before, yes, it was an office, um, there was a reception desk, there was offices, and we actually bought it with the office furniture with the idea of, oh, we'll sell it and get a few quid on Gumtree. Uh, we ended up with a sledgehammer trying to get rid of it in a skip. So um, sometimes trying to um, you know, buy the fixtures and fittings doesn't work out, um, especially when these desks are probably about the same age as, as the house. Um, but uh here's a, here's a, to give you an idea of how we can lay the property out and just to before we say what it is i'll tell you what it was so before we bought it all it was was the ground floor and the first floor now the basement or you know had decent head height um, but there wasn't anything up in the loft so the question that we asked ourselves is how can we maximize this property to make it work financially to be able to get the to get the most um counted it but obviously still managing to maintain communal space and bedroom space so what we did um, is we created essentially an eight-bedroomed hmo eight-bedroom shared house um, and then we created a separate one-bedroom flat in the basement um, so i'll just do you a quick tour so you walk in the front door and then you turn right and you get a um uh, ensuite bedroom, two ensuite bedrooms on the ground floor. You turn left, and this is our large communal kitchen area. So this is the um, communal space for this house. This is about thirty square meters, I believe. Um, so it's well in excess of the uh, of the twenty one that's required for um, eight people to share within Warrington Borough Council. This is in Warrington, in in north in the northwest, halfway between Manchester and Liverpool. Um, so um, that was the communal space there. So we've got a seating area, dining area, and, and large kitchen with two hobs and, and three and a half fridge freezers. Um, so we go up the stairs and we've got four large ensuite bedrooms. These average about 12 and a half square meters plus an ensuite, So they are good size rooms. And then you go up again into the loft And because we had head height in the loft. What we were able to do was create a dormer extension on the back to basically create the same space again. Um, at the rear. But with UK property, you cannot um, extend the, beyond the front. So you can't make it look any different from the front, but from from the back, you can. So so we did that. Um, so that was two bedrooms up there. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in the three stories, um, all of which are study bedrooms. So they've all got desks in, uh, plenty of space to have um, like a small sofa, seating area and a TV if they wanted to in their rooms. But obviously, we want to encourage communal living. So um downstairs, we've also got um, a large, um, I almost said flat screen TV, but all TVs are flat these days. That's a silly thing to say, show my age, but it is a large flat screen TV uh, with a seating area. And then they can, and there is a um, space outside which has got um, cycle storage, for people to cycle, and although no one uses it, it was a requirement from the council. Um, this, the train station is about a minute's walk away from this property, which is, is 20 minutes, 25 minutes into Manchester, 25 minutes into Liverpool. So um a greatly located property. And then down the basement, we created a new entrance at the back, and we came in and we've got um basically a large living area, a kitchen, and um just a non-suite bedroom here. So we excavated the light well here, which was the size of the original light well, and then we also opened up and got planning permission to do a larger light well at the front. So you've got some uh, bay, um, some doors that go out into here, um, and this is painted white with some um, grassy a uh, grass effect. So it's nice and green, and there are and the, the tenant in there has put some nice pot plants and stuff. So, um, so that's what we've done, and um, here's some pictures of it happening. As you can see, we did quite a lot. The roof came off um the back came away um so all that was really left was the front wall and everything else was rebuilt um and as you can see lots of you know lots of work um, done to this property and we went down into the basement as as you can say so we've got the stairways coming in um this was the old down the bottom the old coal chute, and um, where they used to just drop the coal in and um, when the coal man came um and um, this is the light well, which is the same. It's the same size, but it's a bedroom, so it doesn't. It is an escape window. It doesn't have to be. So you can get out of it if you wanted to. Um, but there is nice. This is nice and light in there. But we wanted to make sure that the living space was lighter and brighter than the bedroom, because obviously you go to bed at night when the light's not on, and then you want a nicer living space. And so that's that um, light well opened up. This is what it looks like now. Um, so. Um, I still use as an example. I, you know, we do better now with our design um, than this, um, but this is okay. It's okay. Still very um, me, um, but we, yeah, we do do better. Um, the orange is also gone now. We have replaced the orange um, with with um, a different different color. Uh, this was our letting agent at the time. He really wanted to put orange in, um, but thankfully that microwave blew up. These chairs broke, so we just had to we just had to replace them. Um, but well, as you can see, we've got large spaces, um, and we, we furnish them to this degree, not not much more than this, um, because uh, you know, tenants do come with stuff. They do they do have their own desks, um, and quite often walk into a room if you're doing an inspection. I don't we don't go around very often, but uh, when I when I have been to properties, you see the the room's been moved around they put in their chair um they've got like a 70 inch curved tv and a gaming chair i've seen all that kind of stuff and it's uh quite amazing what tenants can get into these spaces um um but your role as the yeah, as the kind of investor developer or, or the operator is just provide a space which is a great starting point um and then you know, they can sometimes some just move in and they want it exactly as is. Um, others, they move in and they say, oh, I want to move move stuff around. So you don't want to um, begrudge anyone the opportunity to, to move furniture. Um, and um, whenever we don't provide a desk, it is the number one thing we're asked for. Um, so we um, when we started out, we didn't provide desks about four years ago. It was the number one thing we're asked for. Can you put a desk in? Can you put a desk in? So we're now putting desks in as default, regardless of whether it's students or not. Um, um, for it, it's, it can be used to put their own TVs on. It can be used to as a as a changing table. Changing table. That's the the, the dad and me coming out. Uh, makeup makeup changing to makeup table. There we go. Um, and then we've got a large kitchen again, um, which um, does which is which is um, a nice really nice size. So some more image images there to give you an idea of the space that works for co-living so again this is not designed to the hilt it's designed to be uh, a space which is easy to maintain it's designed to be a space which doesn't alienate anybody so um and it's good for well-being so we don't make uh, we don't do any really strong colors anywhere um, because it can put quite a few people off and we don't um, do anything too dramatic um because Again, with tenant well-being is at the forefront of what we're we're doing. So we like natural colours, natural fibres, um, greenery, um, you know that that type of stuff because it works a lot better for longevity of of tenants, um, which is what you want as an investor. You want your 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 housemates to get moving to the property and stay for a long period of time. You know, the average, our average tenancy is well over 12 months. Um, so that's where we like them to be. And there's a misnomer that um, people stay in these properties for a short period of time. And they do in some areas, but actually when you get good at this, um, you'll move a tenant in and they'll be in there for 18 months before they move out because they um, you know, they, they find a girlfriend, boyfriend, um, etc., and move into a flat read the shared living survey. It talks all about this type of stuff. It's really interesting to see what tenants motivations are for moving in and moving out of properties. Okay, so for the, the, those of you who are interested in the investment side, um, here are some numbers. So we bought that property for 147,000 pounds. Uh, the refurb was, was as you can see, it was quite extensive. So we spent a quarter of a million pounds on doing that property up. Um, But um, it turns over um, £5,000 a month. So £60,000 a year from one property. Uh, Our mortgage is just under £1,500 a month. Um, Management fee of 640. Bills, uh, about £800 a month. Uh, Maintenance, we always put some money aside to allow to maintain the property. One of the things I always say um, whenever I'm working with clients or um, our own properties is, you have a maintenance budget and you spend it. your maintenance budget is not your contingency it's there to be spent because your property needs to be looked after um, otherwise it's going to cause you problems in the future and one of the things that I've seen because' I've, I've um, in in my many roles within property and um, whenever I've been coaching people, I've gone to different areas and we've looked at lots of different properties and seen um, the state that some of these properties can get into. And it's really avoidable if the owners of these properties had just invested over the long over time. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a lot of old school landlords coming out of the market, trying to capitalize you know, their capital growth that they've had over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and um, but but not realizing that their properties are absolutely rubbish and need gutting and starting again so there's some people with unrealistic expectations some people just want out um, but there's a good opportunity because it means that some of the really rubbish HMOs are going to be redeveloped to other things like um, family homes um, and uh, maybe flats Um, and others will be then converted into the ones that work into really nice spaces which we would call next level HMOs which can then form a co-living community um so that makes us just under about two thousand pounds a month profit uh, and was revalued at four hundred and eighty three thousand so you might be asking well how can you turn one hundred and forty seven thousand pounds into four hundred and eighty three thousand and the way that you get growth is, that was in a 12 month period the way that you do that is through doing the doing the difficult so going through the planning process and getting uh, permissions to make these things um so what Mish was saying it's really hard to do it in um The Netherlands. Was it Netherlands? Yeah. Really hard to do in the Netherlands because of the way that they zone. But if you find the way to make it work by doing something really hard, that has a lot of value. Um, So this is how we did it. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about this unless people uh, specifically want to, um, but this was an office and it's now, an eight bed HMO and a one bed flat. How do we get there? Well, we started off by using what are called permitted development rights, um, which are rights which allow you to make changes to certain types of properties without um, going for a full planning application. So um, this, is in, this is in the process of changing. The, the UK gov- current government is in the process of um, overhauling this whole process. But at the moment, you can still do this. You can take an office and convert it into residential, and I believe that right will stay in, a, in whatever guise it comes. It will stay. Um, so uh, it allows us to convert um, the office into a house. So we did that. We converted it into a house and a flat using that permitted development right. The great thing about this is, is that normally planning permission can take you it's supposed to take about eight weeks but generally it takes longer like 10 12 even 14 weeks when it, when it shouldn't but with a permitted development right what you could do is you put in the, a form called a prior notification which is um, ticking uh, a small number of boxes and um, so you have to make sure that there's no uh, risk of flooding no ground contamination it's not a risk to the highways uh, by having increased numbers of people in the pro- in the um, yes to so say that the highways are not a risk to the increased number of people in the property and then I always forget one of these. And the last one is about got? Not noise. So um, so it's um, the the noise of other commercial activity on this building. So because this, is a, this was in a residential area, it was one office on a, basically a street of houses. It, it sailed through, it ticked all of those boxes. Um, and because the council, have, they've got 56 days to say no. If they don't say no, it's an automatic yes, which is why we love, Uh, the prior approval process. Um, So once we had an HMO and we had a uh, flat, we then had a permitted development right to convert the the house into an HMO um, uh, because this is a non-article four area for those of you who understand um, HMO planning. If it's an article four area, it stops you from making HMOs out of houses without full planning permission. Um, But then we went for this large HMO the sewage and HMO for seven bedrooms because um, we went from six bedrooms which we could create um, without asking any permission and then we said well we want one more bedroom please uh, and that's not a material change of use it's not a significant change so it's quite easy for the council to go well you've got six people or you've got seven people realistically what's the difference in the number of bins you know the number of you know the impact on the community so they go yes that's fine and because of the way that the sewage and generous planning worked it means that we can actually put in up to about 12 people in that property um, under that current planning permission so we, we just put in the eight that we wanted to in the eight bedrooms and then one in the basement flat and then it was revalued using a commercial valuation at a 10.5% yield which basically means that it turns over let's say £5,000 a month or £60,000 a year so if an investor comes in and wants to buy that income, they're buying a business. And it's the same way that a business is valued. It's valued on the turnover of that business. So because the turnover of that business is is decent, it's £60,000 a year, someone's going to come in and say, well, i will be very happy to buy £60,000 a year for 483000 yeah, It's a good return on their cash. So that's why banks will value it commercially. And actually, I believe the four hundred eighty-three is was downvalued. And I think there is scope to improve. Improve that over time. So that was case study number one. I might pause for questions there because um, I've not looked at the chat, but the numbers have been going up. <laughs> the numbers of, of comments. So there's a
1: few questions, but they are. Yes. Uh, uh, so the last question is uh, Valeria was asking if it's an extra back bedroom or an extra person. I guess she's talking about <clears throat> six to seven. I guess it's bedrooms, right?
2: Good question. So planning permission is not about the number of bedrooms, it's about the number of people. So you can create an eight bedroom HMO and you've not done anything against planning permission until you put the seventh person in the seven unconnected person. In. Um so you could have six couples living in it. So 12 people living in it. Technically you've not broken planning because they're on, un- because the definition of HMO is um, the same for planning law as it is for the housing act. Um, so, but yeah, you've got to, you don't really want to be doing that um, because there's no added value, but I, I would be looking at going for um, seven, eight, nine people. Um, and then it would be, that, that would give you the, the correct number of bedrooms because you can, t- you can change the internals of the property as much as you like, as long as it's not a listed building, you can change the entire of the property as much as you like. So you change it from a six bed to a seven bed to an eight bed, as long as you've got that permission for the number of the correct number of people in uh, the property. Um, Another way of looking at it is you could say, right, I want permission for an eight-bedroom HMO. um, And each of those bedrooms is big enough for two people. And if the council say yes, then technically they are giving you permission for 16 people in that property because they deemed it to be um, double occupancy. Um, So you've got two things here. You've got the licensing, which is going to be slightly different to the planning. And this is where people get very confused with HMOs. Uh,
1: There's another couple of questions from Misha, actually. So the first one was... uh, they just lost it, no, here. Yeah. Uh, how do the neighbors respond to the change of use of next door? Okay, good question.
2: Uh, so um, some of them, so this is in a street which is predominantly a rental accommodation. So they don't really respond to planning applications when they go through the door. Um, I've never had a problem, well, with neighbors, which has stopped a planning application going through. But I know people that have had an absolute nightmare with it. Um, so um, for example, we just done one application, which was to make to go from a six to a seven person. Um, it, it just around the corner from this one actually, because um, it was using the knowledge that I know now. I didn't know it at the time. I created a six bed HMO. Um, but if I'd know what I know I know now, I would have made it a seven bed and I'd, I'd have gone into the loft and i had done all sorts of things different. Um, but it would be far too expensive to do that now so what i thought is well, i'm going to go for planning to go from six to seven now the people on that street don't really like the fact that it's um an hmo um, and so when we put um it, even though the people don't really have cars and they don't really cause a nuisance um they just don't like the, the word hmo it just um so which is why <laughs> i don't like the word hmo <laughs> you know it's, just, it's the same reasons because it, um, it has different meanings for different people councils don't like hmos planning officers don't like hmos because they see them as the, the the rubbish thing whereas i think there's a whole bit of educating councils about what co-living is and it's definitely something that kate and i have chatted about quite a lot with and, and some of the others on the call actually here i've chatted about um uh, you know i love to get in front of as many councils as possible, and show them what co-living is, um, and why they want it in their community, and why they want to get rid of some of the other stuff they've got. Well, but the, well, they know they want to get rid of the other stuff. They just don't know that they want co-living, because some councils are going, "Ooh, we don't want co-living." They're already starting to go, whoa, like Manchester council is already starting to go, I'm "Not quite sure." Um, but the the more that we, um, but but what but, yeah, what would be great as a planning policy to say this is what co-living is. Let's let's go and crazy. I forgot what the question was now. Yeah, neighbours. Um, um, yes, you to get your neighbours either get your neighbours on side before you go for your application, um, or just hope that not not enough of them complain. So on that street, three of them complained about it, um, and it was exactly the same letter. So they obviously had a um, a cup of tea and a biscuit and decided what they were going to write and um, put in the same application, the same objection three times. And I was a bit concerned because the threshold for going to committee was four objections. And if I'd been taken to committee, then we would have had um, a, a, maybe a different outcome. But we would probably have appealed and probably have won.
1: And, and then another one, which is relevant to hear before you go to your second case study, is from where are coming these differences on marketing different areas? I think you must have said something before about it
2: not sure what you mean by that whose question is that do you want to just ask that i i think it's misha it? no is, is it, it your again? question
1: no it's not hey. do we remember who's asked that question from what are coming this different market no that's okay don't worry then carry on maybe someone okay. is not on the call anymore
2: that's fine ask it later if um if i've not answered it so case study number two um this one um i really love this one actually took a little while to get it done, but it's just a really little deal, which um, proves that co-living doesn't need to be a thousand people. Um, It can be as small as three or four in a a community. So um, with this, and this is the building and all of this, again, it's another end terrace. End terrace properties are great because you get quite a bit of space with them generally. the mid-terrace ones are the ones which are generally cause a bit of problem. Everyone's gone. They've all turned their, their cameras off, Kate.
1: <laughs> I think they're sleeping. They're sleeping. I've put them all to sleep. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Guys, <laughs> come on. It's the last 15 minutes and then we have Q&A and a party.
2: And a party. There we go. So case study. In fact, this is the point. If we were in a room together where we get everyone up and we do the do the conga around the room. Okay so uh, this this whole building here um uh, including the back was um a hairdressers so this is a hairdressers um at the at the, the ground floor so all of that is a hairdressers including the um the, the the garage above it was a two bedroom flat so I looked at this looked at it with my team and we said right what could we do with it because it was on the market it was really cheap like it was up for 95,000 and where houses on the street sell for about 140. So like, well, this is a good opportunity. What can we do with this that no one else has seen? Well, the first thing was it, it was it was advertised as in the residential part of Rightmove. So it was advertised in the wrong place and by a residential agent, um, whereas it should have been in the commercial bit advertised by a commercial agent. So not very many people were seeing the opportunity. Um, so we looked at it with we went, well, actually, we've got um, some opportunities to convert this ground floor into um, into residential because there's another permitted development right which allows us to convert shops which are not on a main high street into residential so we can ju- use that same process of a prior notification that really light planning application that you just put in you just tick those boxes and for this it's the same boxes as the office but um, as long as long as you're not on a, um, a primary high street then you're absolutely fine So all of this ground floor was a retail unit as a hairdresser, including this garage at the back. So um, if we look at what we did, uh, you can see that we actually managed to knock it down and rebuild that garage um, at the back as as residential. Um, So what we could do is we applied to the council and we said we would like to make three flats on the ground floor, one at the front, one in the middle and one at the back. So when I say flats, we could make this um, shed, this garage into a flat, but we can't change the outside of it. We can only change the inside. Yeah. So that permission went, that sailed through, no problem at all. So we've now got permission to go um, one, two, three flats, uh, one, two, three apartments there. But that's pretty rubbish. So we then went back and we said, we would like to be able to, um, knock that down, and then attach it to the rest of the building. That required the full planning permission. So we did that. Um, and, and then we were able to keep a small bit of the shop at the front. And then at the top, we went one, two, three bedrooms. On the ground floor, we've got a fourth bedroom and then this um, extension or, or the rebuilding of the garage and um, where it's now attached to the building is the, is the communal um, lounge and kitchen. So, these bedrooms again are all large. They're about, they're between 11 and 13 square meters each, uh, plus an ensuite, uh, which some of the, well, some of the ensuite are really quite large. And then we've got um, this communal space again, which is large for four people. Um, Now, I'll explain why we didn't come, because there's enough space for it to be a six bedroom HMO. You might be thinking, well, six bedroom HMO, that turns over more money than five. But um, as a mixed use property, it's more valuable. Uh, and i'll explain why in a, in, in a moment so here are some photos um, of it um, finished and again I, I didn't splash out on the photographer this one which is which was a mistake so always um splash out on your marketing because it's when your property is finished you, you you've done it to a really nice standard that's the only chance the, the only time it's going to be exactly as you want it to look so take the photo so you can use it to, to market it so you can bring people in um because it's, it's your shop front um and then so we've got um, large living kitchen um large bedrooms as we can you can kind of see there um, and it works really well for us so what we were able to do was to get that permitted development to convert the ground excuse me the ground floor into three flats which created what was called a fallback position so the council um know that we could do that so we now want to say well we don't want to do that we want to do something better um, so we've got planning permission for the retail plus a four bedroom HMO, which is C4 use. It's a mixed use scheme and because it's mixed use, it got commercial valuation. Now, something that you may or may not know is that, um, I mentioned article four before, and article four direction is something which stops you from being able to create HMOs because it means you have to do planning permission to go from C3 to C4 usage. Um, now, in this area, there, there is no article four, which means that you can just go from C three to C four, and that means that it's not very hard to do. So banks don't value it highly. It's not going to be sold on at a premium because it's not a difficult thing to do. So what the banks, so what we did here was we said, right, we're going to leave it as a mixed use scheme because it's mixed use. It would never be sold on as a house. So a six bedroom house or six bedroom HMO in this area is worth about one hundred eighty thousand, whereas this scheme was valued at two hundred and thirty with four bedrooms and a shop. So it's valued higher because of the mixed use nature of it, Um, because it was in a non-article four area. If this was in an article four area, I'd have had to go through full planning to get permission to create six bedrooms in that property. So again, it was valued in a very similar way to the previous one.
1: Matt, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't know if you have already, but as we have some people on the call who come internationally, do you want to maybe explain just a little bit what Article 4 is, if you haven't already? I don't remember if you did.
2: No, I didn't explain it in detail. Um, So an Article 4 direction um, stops this permitted development uh, right. So the government at the national level says, we want you to develop um, certain types of properties into residential, or we want you to... Um, do extensions to a certain size without having to ask planning permission so we did that and that that commercial um that's so that permitted development right allows that change of use so the government at the top level has said yes we want that to happen but then councils say well actually i prefer not to um have that so they put an argument to the government and say can we put an article four direction in and as long as they've got a good argument they say yes and then they can it stops you from going from from one thing to another, without the full, without that planning application. So, um, in an area that which has implemented an Article Four directive, it means that you now need planning permission to create any HMO. Um, whereas in this area, which is Warrington, there is no Article Four direction. So, I wanted to find a way where I could create a really great um, next-level HMO um, with great space, great design, great community, but still get a really good value at the end. Um, which to make it worthwhile doing in the first place. And the way to do that was to create a mixed scheme, um, leveraging the planning permissions, which we could to then get that end value. Happy to answer any more questions on that.
1: No, that's fine. I think if we do like a few more minutes or whatever you have to do, then we'll take some Q&A. Yeah, not a problem at all. Thanks.
2: Um, so one of the things that we talked about when uh, Kate and I talked about them um, as investment strategy, how do you future-proof um, yeah, what, why is this? Uh, why our next level HMO is a future-proof um, strategy, and it's because of this. And it's coming back to the, the commoditized marketplace of the you know, the beige box. Um, so we talked about the old PC being um, kind of superseded by um, this really fancy, shiny-looking uh, you know, Apple Macintosh, um, which is no longer called a computer. It's called a Mac. You buy a Mac. You don't buy a computer. Um, so, um, all the beige boxes that the, and you, you can, the Magnolia wall, um, even the, you know, the gray feature walls are in this commoditized marketplace, but it's all about price. It's very price sensitive. Um, and there are two ends of the marketplace that work generally well, generally most of the time. And it's, um, in the social housing market where the government is paying the rent, um, where you can get good occupancy um, but your profits aren't necessarily as high as, as um, other other strategies that you might employ and then you've got the, being at the top of the market where you're in the top 5% of all HMOs whereby uh, you've created um, uh, a product which is quality design, quality space and you deliver quality service that will create that sense of co-living and, and basically what the way, the way that I see the market going is that actually co-living becomes the top 5% and potentially the top 10% in an area. So the people that get it right will then benefit from longevity of tenancies, from less churn and from... Higher rentals as well, because people will pay extra for for great service and great quality, um, as opposed to um, being in a price war. So, from an investment perspective, this works really well, and it's where the profits make it worthwhile doing. Because there are quite a few areas in the UK where it's not worthwhile doing. Therefore, the stat- there's no incentive for the current uh, the current owners of properties to up the up their own standards. Um, so, when we're trying to disrupt the market and make the people that have been in it um change um to make something better for the consumer um uh, yeah we need to make these things work financially and this is where it starts to work financially is being in the top five percent i just wanted to give you an um like a, a numerical example of that so this is warrington i've just been onto spare room which is uh, for those of you that don't know is a uk-based a website where the majority of uh rooms are advertised throughout other places um spare room i think is is is, yeah it's okay it's not particularly exciting um it's a bit like a a marketplace um but um it has lots of stats so for example i can look and see the average room rentals in the wa1 postcode which is where the the first property that i showed you is that the old um, insurance property so that one wa1 um so the average rents are about 99 pounds a week um but the maximum rents you're getting in that area for a double room with all bills included which is what we provide it's 133 pounds a week so that's a huge difference so the average rent is 430 but the highest rent in the area is 575 we've actually got rooms rented on that street for 585 at the moment so that's a difference of 34 percent between being in the commoditized part of the marketplace where it's the price war to being actually in the top 5-10 percent of the market where you actually get an in- increased um, quality of tenant and inque- increased increased uh, rental income, and then increase capital value as well. So, from a financial perspective, it makes sense. But do you know what makes it work? Is uh, uh, what gets, what enables people to to stay and to pay, um, is that forming of the community, which comes back to where we started. Um, it's so important to have that space, design, service. Because if you don't, you're going to fall straight out of that top five percent. Um, and then you're going to be back into the commoditized marketplace, even though your HMO might look nice. Um, word spreads. The best customer in, in any other business, um, your best customer, the ones that. Um, sorry, not your best customers. Your best marketing is a raving customer, someone who's raving about your business. game This is so amazing. You have. You must go and live in here. You must buy one of these. So. If we can create customers, housemates who rave about what we do, you're never going to have any issues with people not paying, people um, um, leaving. Um, Your voids are going to um, dramatically reduce. Your rents will dramatically increase. So when you have um, increasing income and decreasing expenses, then actually your profitability over the long term is much, much better, which is why co-living makes common sense it makes human sense for um the people living it, but it makes business sense as well so the two things go hand in hand and, and that's why we use um we've created methodology which we use to, to ensure that we're creating what we need to do for our um uh, for our um housemates but now what now what's happening and a question that i often get when i speak at the moment is about you know what has happened with covid19 coronavirus what you know, what's going to happen in the shared marketplace um i got an email from someone the other day saying that co-living market is dead uh it's dying i was like you what um it's only just only <laughs> just starting you know it's something which hasn't even um, fully formed yet um it's definitely not dying now and this is what Um, my view is on the impact of COVID on the shared housing market. It's not that people are going to be scared to live with others. In fact, people are going to want it even more. And this is why Um, there's going to be an increased demand for quality. So the design of the space is going to be important because people are now living in their houses. Um, They're working from their houses as well. So they need space um, either in their rooms or in the communal spaces to be able to work effectively. Um, So there is going to be an increased demand for self-contained facilities. We've already seen, um, people wanting to, um, to not wanting to share bathrooms as much. So if you had a, a five-bed property and we're all sharing one bathroom, that is less appealing than it once was. So we do majority of the all ensuite properties because it that is seen as a premium product. It definitely demands a higher rental in the areas where we operate. Always caveat it. Each area has its own uh, market. Um, but then there's also this realisation that um, people are living in a community. Um, people have been in shared housing since March, have been locked down for three months. Some of their houses have been locked down since then. If People are having um, being tested positive. So it means that they are having to look out for each other more. It means that um, if they didn't know people in their houses, they do now because they've been sharing that space with them so much more. So there is going to be a demand for uh, more, more social space. And you know, as Valerie was saying this um, s- a juxtaposition between, you know, what do you do? What do you focus on the communal space or the bedrooms? And when I started in property four years ago, um, everyone was saying, Oh, you make the communal space as small as possible because people don't use it. That is changing. And 2020 is the year that, that I, I would say officially changed. We need communal space uh, because it engenders community, which engenders long tenancies, longevity of um, income into your business and but then better communities. Um, and so basically the general demand for co-living and next to HMOs is gonna increase. So be the 5%. If you invest or uh, operate co properties, you need to make sure that, that they are in the top 5% because if they are, your issues will um, very gradually um, float away as long as you maintain the property and maintain the relationships in the community within that building. So this is what we do now so um, this is one which has just completed this is a 20 it's currently 21 bedroom hmo divided into seven flats again i'm not going to go through the the detail of um how we got there because this is kind of still ongoing um it's a bit painful this one but we're we're almost there with it um but again we upped our level of of design um with this property um the long-term plan for this is to have a community manager um, either living in the property or local to Stockport, which is where this is, um, who, who uh, is going to be looking after people coming in, coming out of that property, 21 people. Um, but the 21 people are that there are seven shared facilities within that, sorry, six shared facilities within the property. So they don't have to go and all share one, uh, one um, kitchen space. Um, so they get that shared space and they get their, their rooms, which are all between 10 and 12 square meters each. So again, decent size plus an ensuite on top. Um, this is another one which is just uh, completing on Monday coming. Um, this is it from the outside. Uh, as you say, it looks pretty small, but actually, this is a TARDIS. It is massive inside. Uh, this is a seven bedroom HMO in Portsmouth. And again, as you can see, everything we're doing, we're upping the design, we're upping the, the quality. So, as you can see, we've got better looking space. We've got um, you know, rooms, built in furniture, et cetera. This type of thing will let really easily but that doesn't make it co-living. Co-living happens once the tenants have moved in, once they've formed that community, that's when they stay and when they pay. So just remember don't get confused between design and co-living, it's not the same thing. There is a there is a um, um yeah I'd say there definitely is a, co- a design which is moving into the co-living realm, but it's not the same thing. So co-living happens when you manage property well. So that's again another one that we're doing um so just to finish up and, and, and wrap up um why do we do what we do well why do i do what i do again it comes back to um a few of the fundamental reasons of why what i love um so as a musician i've I, i'm a piano player it's a very lonely instrument um as you can see i'm kind of sitting at the back here by myself um you know, it's a very lonely instrument and i didn't really um get into music in a big way until i started playing in bands and ensembles and with others and that's when things started to change for me and i love the sense of community this is one of the bands i worked with for about six seven years we did some really cool stuff Um, i really love being part of a community of musicians and bringing people together um but i also loved the business side of it so from the age of 16 i had a cover band we used to go and do gigs for about a hundred quid, 150 quid. We're making 50 quid each. It was amazing. Yeah, we were going out there on a Saturday night, spending probably about eight hours going to a, a venue playing, getting 50 quid. It was amazing. Um, and then I realized how amazing or less amazing it was as I as I grew older. Um, but I really wanted to run a business and the success my first successful business I said was the same Institute of Music um, in South Oxfordshire. So within the music industry, I love the sense of community. I love creating great business. And that has really followed through into what I do and what we do at Scott Baker Properties in the developments that we do in building community and uh, and building great business because i don't know whether anyone you follow the un global goals for sustainable development um but we do we subscribe to these uh and we um donate time and and money and resources to two in particular and we chose two which um jump out not not that the others are not important to us but goals number eight and number 11 to decent work and economic growth i'm very much a believer that if i'm going to donate money it's going to be in the form of a way to help someone Um, maybe set up their own business so give them the opportunity to um, be self-sustainable rather than just giving money for giving money's sake Um, I believe in 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 that approach and again building sustainable cities and communities is about um, making sure that our the places that we live are sustainable for the long long term and looking at ways of um, creating space which works well and I'm definitely not an expert in it and I'm looking and I'm working working We're looking to work with people to really help push that agenda forward within our own business. So building great community, building a great business. When those two come together, the intersection of those two, that's when, for me, the magic happens and that in property is co-living. It's not the old way. It's the new way of working. And our vision is to create a positive impact on the HM and key living communities across the UK, and actually now across the globe, if we, you know, if and when we can, creating lifelong peace of mind for both the landlord, the owner of the property, and the tenants. So that's our long-term vision. And realistically, how can yeah? So I, I, we. Yeah, how can we support you? Um, I'll go I'll go to Q and A. I've got a couple of slides after this, um, Kate. If people want, but risk um, at this point, we can go to Q and A.
1: I think there's only sixteen of us left in here, so I think it would be nice if you guys can just unmute yourself and just, you know, be very interactive and speak to Van uh, to Matt. Sorry, <laughs> I was reading. I was reading Van reply. That's why. Sorry, and speak to Matt. So I know that Valeria was asking Valeria. You did ask a question a second ago. Uh, would you have had planning permission granted had you had the rebuilding of the garage plan gone to the council in first instance
2: say that again let me see whether i can
1: okay i can i can ask it
3: uh, yes please please. when you spoke about the um commercial to raising conversion where the uh, a hairdresser it was you said that and in first instance you went to the council and you said you would develop three flats at the bottom of the building yep. gronpo, and you would leave the garage as it was just converting into a um an apartment so the then you went back and then sorry yep. then you went back and you you said okay no we're gonna change this we're gonna knock down this garage and rebuild it attached to the house
2: yep
3: so was he a strategic approach or yes. It, happen? yes
2: it was done say i call it hybrid planning strategy where you have an idea of what you want in your head and there's a route to get there now um in planning there's the easy way and the hard way the easy way is to leverage your permitted development rights and then um you gradually get what you want through multiple planning applications um, or there's the hard way and you ask for what you want on day one now um, and you try and sell them on it both are valid, but you need to look at each project that you're doing and go, well, which is going to, which is the best way of doing it? Because you've not just got the planning to think about, you've got the finance because you can't get some of the finance to do some of the works until you've got the planning in place. Um, so And you've also got planning risk if it doesn't go through as you think it's going to and you get delayed and you have to go to appeal. So what I didn't tell you is that um, our first planning application was refused um, for that because they didn't like the design of the roof. They wanted a... F- um, a flat roof instead and we went in for a pitch and we thought the reason was rubbish and the council even apologized say i oh, did not mean to do that because they had a, consult- a third party consultant doing it um so we appealed the decision and we resubmitted another planning application which enabled us to to have um two options because we won the appeal and we got the second planning application but that added about seven eight months to the to the process thankfully the property was full with, with a hairdresser and a tenant so it didn't cost us any more but we did buy the project so it was on a bridging loan for about 18 months that one
3: thank you matt
2: no problem
1: anyone else unmute yourself i know there were a few questions before i'm happy to read them out again mihaela was asking how do you source your properties and what's the average void well mihaela i'm hoping i'm pronouncing your name properly uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask directly. Yeah.
2: Hi. Hi.
5: I uh, just uh, follow you and your partner, Niall, on your projects. And uh, uh, it's exactly what I intend to do in the UK market. So okay. I'm now in Romania, but i like to start a business in UK. And um, so I have some questions that's like uh, how you sort your properties because there is a very, let's say, specific property that you are looking for, enable that, uh, uh, able to develop this kind of uh, next level HMO. So it's not all, the, all the, the properties are suitable for this kind of project
2: and uh yeah just so sourcing so how how do we
5: yeah
2: Yeah. how do we find them um majority of them are found through agents so just having really good uh, relationships with the state agents and commercial agents um no secret source no rocket science no you know you you know there are there are you know 20 30 ways of finding property we've boiled it down so I've, i've got a book coming out in in January, and in that, I think I boiled it down to about nine ways. That realistically, if you follow, it, if you just do those, um, you will find it. And and the, one of the best ones is go to where you know, go to the the person that's where people go to deals, which is the agency. And um, and you with the type of deals that we do, um, we're offering not that far off asking, because we're adding the value through the planning permission so um that's why we can do what we do alternatively you're um you're you're trying to go quite low in your offering in in your pricing uh, but at the end of the day the types of projects we do they are more like developments rather than a landlord doing a quick um uh, refurb on a property it's it is a, a more of a development um even the smaller ones as you can see are more like developments
5: okay and uh, um
2: with this kind of uh, uh, HMOs will uh, still have void?
5: voids? Voids,
2: um, so yes, not, uh, yeah. so um, I would say there are some HMOs where the void between uh, room, between tenancies is maybe two, three days, three, four days maybe um you've got others whereby it might be more like a week um it depends on the area what time of year it is because if you're um and um how if you're developing an area so we've just developed two HMOs in Warrington uh, which were coming to the market just as um COVID hit and so we had probably about you know 12 13 rooms to fill all of a sudden because we had the new ones coming on the market and we had a couple of had some people move out so um those voids have been have been longer because of a um a perfect storm of stuff but uh we generally find that it takes about a week to relet a room so um uh, we've been pretty much hitting the average of like one new tenant per week um and, and i'd say to be on the on the side of caution, just say, yeah, if it's um, a week is a good number to say that's gonna be between tenancies um, on average, but depends how long the tenants are staying. If you create really great properties and you you, um, create the great space design and service, then they're gonna be staying for uh, 12, 18, 24 months. If they're staying for 24 months, a week void is actually a lot less in comparison to a week void if you're once a year.
5: So how, how, how long they stay in average? The tenants?
2: Uh, I, I don't know the exact number at the moment, um, but um, we've got, I know we've got some tenants who are coming up to about three, three and a half years. So I've got a couple who've, who have been with us quite a long time. Um, and I'm just trying to think. We, you know, like one of the rarest emails we get is a tenant moving out. Um, so I would say we're probably around about thirteen, fourteen months. We're over a year as an average tenancy, but so it is going up as we and as we introduce more co-living elements into our business. I expect that to go up um, again. So, um, yeah, does that answer your question?
5: Um, yeah, and, um, you, how how many? uh rooms are occupied by couples and uh, how many by singles?
2: Uh mainly singles. So it's very rare that we'll take a couple. If we take a couple, we probably charge about 25% on top of the room rate um to allow for extra bills and extra usage. Um so um and it puts some couples off because they think they can just divide the room rate in two. So they would no, because it doesn't work like that. That's assessed based on one person being in the property. Um, also, couples bring a different dynamic into a shared house. Couples um, argue. Couples try and have romantic evenings in the shared communal space. Couples, um, yeah, it, it depends on the couple. Um, so we do it sparingly. Um, at the moment, Nile and I were actually just discussing earlier today, whether we were going to take on a couple in one of our properties. And I think the answer we went with, yes, because it's getting close to Christmas. So not that we're just taking anybody, but, um, it's like, well, yeah, we'll take them on. Um, and we'll trial it because at the end of the day, if the couple breaks up, they move out. Um, if the couple argue a lot, they kind of move out. And generally what you find is with couples is they don't stay very long. They're not long-term tenants, mainly because they can probably afford a, a flat by themselves together.
1: I uh sorry, I am I'm going to interrupt you and Daya Matt. I think it really depends on where is it and mm-hmm. the type of property and everything. Yep. We had uh a couple of couples. Yep. Um and you know the last one that left only two months ago and the reason why they did it is because both of them now they work from home While before it was only one Mm -hmm. so they did it they needed a larger space to have their private office as in both work and they are on call all day so using the communal area in our house wouldn't have been any more acceptable for both of them but they stayed there for 16 months huh And yeah. they were brilliant i mean they they were really nice, they didn't need to have i I guess it really depends. It's part of the onboarding and also to have like you were saying before it goes back to like you know the community feeling and someone that really understands what kind of tenants or customers to bring into your place and you know and explains to them what it is and you know how the the couples actually can interact with everybody
2: yeah, I think I think that's really important um Everything I say is just caveat it, saying this is our experience in the areas that we operate, yeah. and with the people that, of the, the other properties that we've seen in other areas through coaching, um, they, yeah, I, I would stick to my original answer of most of the time couples don't work, or if they do work, they don't stay. That's my experience um, across the UK, yeah. um, but it depends. And it's of always gonna be it depends. Depends no, on, the, my on the people. Mine
1: wasn't <clears throat> sorry if I came if it came across that way. Mine wasn't saying that I oh, don't no, no, no. know what I, you yeah. say. saying. You know, I, I do agree, but I think it goes back to what you were saying before about having either you as a you know, as an operator to really understand
2: oh yes, definitely your
1: community and people and everything, because everybody will be different. Or the agents that you work, or the company that kind of like manage your properties, etc, to really understand that you know to 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 maybe if they take an inquiry to really sit down and and, and make sure that people do understand that, like for example, the couple we had was a couple that that 's all they do they just they yeah. just go out they go in different countries and they live in co-living spaces, mm-hmm. so you know they know how everything is, maybe if someone is newer uh I would be a little bit maybe concerned as well. Aware. Maybe aware more than concerned.
4: Yeah. Last question. Yes. Um did I hear you say
2: data so we can say, right, we know that in London there are um, you know, a million people renting rooms. So therefore we can very happily create uh, you know, five percent of those um as you know, we can have fifty thousand rooms and be absolutely fine. You know, uh, and Or you might go into a town where you say, well, there's only uh, currently people, you know, um, a thousand people renting rooms. So we don't really want to do more than uh, 50 rooms in that particular town. So, um, and already understanding your competitor. It's with any business, you do a competitor analysis, you do your your SWOT um, analysis to see the strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats and go, right, what is the opportunity here? Um, what is the potential threat of moving into this marketplace um, and that's just the type of approach that we have to looking at a new area um so we know quite a lot of areas quite well through investing them in them ourselves or working with others that it do invest in them so um I think fundamentally if you do the if you do your best with the available information which is there um and you choose areas where there is a growing demand for rooms so that you know there's growing employment, there's growing businesses, that type of thing you're looking for. That's, that's, it's just really key to make sure that you're not going into a declining market. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So this 5% is something like a very average uh, figure of the percentage of the level. So it depends on the area. The slattern can be something in another area. Between yeah, I think
2: it, You've got to do your specific research in that specific town um, and take a view. So, if five percent is, in. So originally, I was yeah. You know, when I thought about this, I thought, well, okay, you've got the Pareto principle, which is 80-20 rule. So the twenty, yeah, you know, the top twenty percent of properties are where you want to be aiming. But actually, um to ensure that you're always filled, it's it's gonna be a more like the top five to 10%. So the 5% to a certain extent is arbitrary. It could be between five or 10%. It could be that you need to be in the top three or 4%. But really, um, if as long as you can make sure that you're um, at the top of the market, that you get your quality space, design and service with your property and your project, then um, you will have created the next level HMO and manage it well, and then you'll create coding
0: Thanks again for joining us today. And from all of us here at CoLive, we hope you learned a lot and maybe even picked up a few pieces of wisdom to help expand the co-living movement. To check out the CoLive membership that will allow you to connect with other leading co-living professionals or even just to stay updated on future podcasts and upcoming events, head over to colive.org. Again, that's co-liv.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode.